You know I, I, I could talk my way into sacred places I know try, I, I just play my snake it in son of Satan Hi everyone and welcome back to the China in the Americas podcast. Yes, it's been a long break but we're back finally and we're going to have two guests today to discuss the top few stories in China, Latin America, Caribbean relations for 2021. So yes, it is a news recap and this is normally done in January but it's February and it's as good as any other time. And our first guest is Mitch Hayes, who is the writer of the China Signal Newsletter. I also have Ethan Connett, who is a government religious counselor at the International Business Government Counselors and writer of the uh, China Latin American Caribbean Dispatch, or CELAC Dispatch. And I'm really looking forward to this episode. We have not discussed amongst ourselves what news stories we pick. So it's pretty fun to figure out what we think are the top news stories from last year. So here we go. Hi guys. Hi Rashid, how are you? Rashid, how are you doing? Ah, pretty good. Very good, very good. So, I'm looking forward to this. I have no idea what you guys chosen for the top stories. Um, I'm just going to really jump right into it. I'm going to start with Ethan. All right. Well, thank you, Rashid, for having me on. Uh, for my first story of 2021, I chose uh, the Taiwan debacle, which is what I'll call it, um, You know, which is really multiple things. The biggest one, of course, being that Nicaragua broke relations with Taiwan at the end of December, uh, actually December 10th. Um, it was a pretty messy breakup. Not only did they switch relations, they broke a free trade agreement pretty quick after. Uh, and the T Nicaraguan government seized the Taiwanese embassy, uh, which had been donated to uh, the Roman Catholic Archdi Archdiocese in Managua. So not a very happy ending. Um, now Taiwan is now down to 14 allies. Um, it's the, the first breakup since 2018 when El Salvador uh, broke relations. Um, and it didn't stop at Nicaragua, right? You had uh, Honduras uh, had a new president uh, who has not yet broken relations, but at, and during the campaign promised to. Um, it looks like for now that relations are stable uh, with the vice president of Taiwan visiting uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but definitely some disruption there. And then, of course, there were hints earlier in the year with Paraguay um, considering um, opening an investment office on the mainland, um, hints that certain Chinese emissaries were suggesting that Paraguay should break relations for vaccines. Um, so overall, a, a tough year for Taiwan, but easily the biggest thing to note was the break with Nicaragua in December. Hmm. You know, when you started off saying Taiwan tobacco, funny enough, I thought you were going to mention Guyana. Because that was also last year, I forgot, it was the very beginning of last year, when you had that big news, well, it was mostly a news debacle, where Guyana had mentioned, or sorry, Taiwan had mentioned that, oh, they started relations diplomacy with Guyana, and then probably two days later, or three days later, or actually, no, less than 24 it hours It was, exactly. Later, very, got, very quick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you got, the Guyanese president said, no, we're not doing that, cut the deal, Just everyone go, leave country, and that was it. So I thought, that's what you mentioned. But Nicaragua won, yeah, that's, uh, 
actually it just happened i also forgot about that yeah i mean i mean uh, uh, quite a quite an eventful year and i i too immediately went to guyana as well when 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 you started mentioning that ethan um that was i think just a stunning uh 24-hour period of of somewhat bungled diplomatic messaging um and and just quite remarkable to see how quickly um guyana sort of backtracked from that as well so um yeah I, I sort of, you know, immediately turn still to the pandemic. And for me, what I'll go with first, generally speaking, is, you know, I, I saw a deepening and broadening of the relationship um, across the region um, from from China, Beijing, you know, engaging not just at a sort of a, a national government level, but increasingly at state and local governments um, and increased sort of interaction from the private sector as well beyond pure business terms. And what I'd really sort of zoom in, you know, as, as a bit of a, an interesting case study was was Brazil. Um, you know, you saw it reversed its ban on, on Huawei, um, participating in the 5G network shortly after soliciting um, Beijing for COVID-19 vaccines. Um, but then you saw when Bolsonaro, you know, indicated that he, he wasn't actually interested or keen on, on, on purchasing Chinese vaccines at the time, um, one of his political rivals, uh, the governor of Sao Paulo, uh, negotiated directly um, with Sinovac to to secure, um, you know, production um, within within the state, um, and then eventually that was supplied throughout the country as well. Um, but then you saw, you know, a little bit of uh, sort of sharp edged um, diplomacy, I think, from Beijing as well. Uh, again, following some some pretty crass remarks from from Bolsonaro and his economic minister um, Paulo Guedes, um, you saw Sao Paulo's you know Butantan Institute had to sort of slow their production of of, of Sinovac vaccines um, from uh, you know a, a mysterious delay um, or hold up of some of the critical inputs that were being supplied um, from China. Um, you know, there's there's certainly plausible deniability um, as to whether all this was sort of linked, um, but we've seen this kind of behaviour from Beijing before, um, and certainly in the media, um, the institute's director, you know, was connecting the dots um, and and assuming that um, the delay in, in in these in these supplies were were because of these comments from Bolsonaro um, and some of his other ministers. Um, so for me, that's that's sort of you know one of of actually sort of a look at a few other examples um, of in, you know this this sort of thickening of the relationship, um, and you also saw sort of instances of learning as well um, from from various countries on how to engage um, with their Chinese counterparts, how to engage through um, you know businesses or d- directly through to Beijing as well. Yeah, that, that kind of like a track, say a track two diplomacy type stuff. Yeah, we, you've been seeing a lot, well, at least I've been seeing a lot more people in the Caribbean, people or organizations in the Caribbean proper talk about that. Oftentimes that's been a case where all oh, the governments are a bit slow or a bit behind. Let's see if we can accelerate this on our own terms. So yeah, you're seeing a lot more of that now, where before it was... Maybe like five years ago, even there was no, there was no track to diplomacy at all in the Sea Caribbean, China. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you saw it earlier on in the pandemic as well with with PPE um, donations. You, you know, a, a few academics were were trying to track 
um, the the flow of, of PPE from China to the region. And it was actually sort of quite difficult at times to differentiate what was officially donated, you know, what was purchased um, or officially donated, shall I say, from from Beijing um, versus uh, donations from uh, companies as well. Um, and, and I think that really highlighted again um, it, 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 there was a certain um, what I I guess what I what I was seeing and noticing is and what this sort of pattern shows is it wasn't just all top down necessarily um, Beijing was sort of directing out you know um, uh, you know x amount of PPE to 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 Colombia and 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 y amount to Argentina or whatever else. Um, it was scrappy. Some of it was directed from the top, um, but a lot of it came from the ground up too um, and, and from companies um, willing to donate and for people, you know, Latin Americans with connections to these companies willing to solicit and, and, and get PPE um, in, in whatever form or shape they could. I think your point, Mitch, about the individual companies and organizations is a really Interesting point. I mean, on on the one side, two two examples come to mind. The first is Didi, uh, you know, a ride hailing service. Someone who's not normally in the vaccine and pharmaceutical business uh, was both donating vaccines, uh, donating the money for vaccines to countries like Argentina and Brazil, um, but then was also donating funds uh, to help elderly Costa Ricans travel. So you know, you see all kinds of examples there of companies taking up the mission, whether. You know, they got a ring on the phone or they independently decided to do that. You know, it's important to remember that there's other actors other than just the foreign ministry doing these things. Um, so I think that's spot on. And then there's the flip side of that, where it wasn't just countries receiving uh, vaccines and PPE. You know, um, the South American Football Federation, right, received 50,000 vaccines, I believe, or so. Uh, so that that could continue, which if there was a way into the, you know, hearts and souls, um, maybe more than <laughs> donating it to the host government is donating it so that a soccer tournament could continue. Uh, absolutely. That, that, and that garnered a lot of, a lot of great um, publicity and coverage, right? I'm pretty sure, am, am I not wrong in saying Lionel Messi? There was a Lionel Messi um, signed jersey that was, that was included um, as, as, a, as, as, as a show of gratitude, I think, to, to Sinovac as well for the donations, for the vaccine, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I think I remember seeing that as well. Um, and it, it goes to show that getting the attention of people, you know, China really succeeded in publicizing and making sure everyone knew that they were, uh, them and their companies, um, or companies from China, sorry, not their companies, were um, helping to combat the pandemic across the region. And, and I think, Ethan, too, just, just, to, just to go back to the, to the COP America um, example. I mean, to me, that's just such a great um, uh, example of, you know, I, I don't, I don't think um, the organisers of of Copper America were sort of sitting around and saying, you know, we we need to give Beijing some some great sort of um, soft power sort of publicity here. They were thinking, you know, we're facing this tournament not going ahead. We need to to scrap and 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 fight and ask our friends in any way possible for some vaccines um, to ensure our players um, can can play with some degree of safety. And then, you know, essentially it, it was yeah through through Uruguay um, basically said, you know, we know a guy 
and 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 it went through Sinovac and 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 it was because those connections um people to people connections through you know in the, in the case of of these you know vaccine executives through through Sinovac and and government officials in Uruguay um they had formed that connection already um and then they were able to you know had learned through that process and then were able to go back and 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 secure these so i think it's just a classic example that, that you know that there was no sort of necessary ideology at play here um sort of broader um, foreign policy, strategic thinking. Um, it was just, we need vaccines. Um, but it does play out afterwards, you know, through yeah, some great publicity and, and, and here we are talking about it now, right? <laughs> so my first news story is the announcement from Grenada that a Chinese person is going to be the ambassador of Grenada, Grenada to the World Trade Organization. So this is surprising for a few reasons. Of course, yes, he's a Chinese person, but the process of becoming a Grenadian ambassador is quite innocent. And also, this particular person is not a random person. Um, Justin Sun, we know in English, or uh, Sun Yunchen, he's a very, very famous person in, in cryptocurrency world. So that's kind of mostly where I, um, my day job is. And he, so he's very rich. Very, very wealthy and very famous on the internet in the fintech crypto world. And the fact that he has become an ambassador from a Carib- to a Caribbean country, he's a 31-year-old Chinese bil- billionaire, essentially. And so the reason is why it's instant also is because the process to become the ambassador means he will have to become Grenadian. And to do that, what likely case is he probably bought a passport because Grenada is one of the five Caribbean countries that sell passports or to be more accurate, uh, citizenship by investment programs. So you pay some money um, around 100K US dollars or so, depending on some um, different, uh, say, add-ons. <laughs> and you would get the passport and the citizenship in about three, four months or so pending pending uh, due diligence and there are some other of course some other high profile instances in the, in the Caribbean where some uh, Chinese billionaires receive the passports not not only a normal passport but a diplomatic passport uh, Antigua and Barbuda another Caribbean country that sells the passports and I don't mean that any negative way I think it's actually a good idea to sell passports they had some ambassadors at large from China who does some essentially market the country to different parts of the world, in the you know, Middle East, in Hong Kong, and so on. So Justin Sun, he's the recent most high-profile person to have gotten one of these passports, and now he's the actual ambassador of a country in the Caribbean to the WTO. It's not by any means a minuscule posting in like St. Lucia or, you know, Brazil. And it's not that big of a news story outside of Twitter, China people and crypto people. So very my weird intersection there. Yeah, I'm surprised how little um, talk this has been raised on the, on the internet. Yeah, I, I saw I saw your post about this article um, and all, all this this event, and I was yeah that was the first I'd heard of it to be to be completely honest. But I think I think it's yeah quite remarkable as well. Um, surely it's got to be some kind of record for for from from citizenship to to diplomatic posting, right? <laughs> 
So my next news story, uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, uh, is the raft of new trade agreements uh, that seem to be coming out of out of the region, um, specifically with Uruguay um, and uh, Ecuador. Um, Uruguay uh, had hinted throughout the beginning of the year that they wanted to pursue a free trade agreement with China. And then uh, in the early fall, um, the president made it official, um, which infuriated the rest of Mercosur because they're not supposed to pursue uh, bilateral trade agreements. You know, it's supposed to be a group effort for Mercosur. Um, but with the, the, the trade agreement between the EU and Mercosur uh, seeming to be dithering, at least for the moment, um, Uruguay decided that this was, was the best moment for them. Um, and th- this followed a lot of negative commentary from Uruguay's president and the current administration, um, even though um, you might expect them to align a little bit more with the U.S. Uh, I remember there was a specific quote where the president said, uh, Uruguay is lucky to be able to count on the support of China and accused the U.S. of more reacting than acting towards the region. Um, and then on, on the Ecuador side, um, you know, President Lasso was inaugurated on May 24th, um, and right before he, he was elected, he had promised to pursue new free trade agreements with everyone. Um, the U.S. does not seem especially interested at the moment, um, and, but it seems that that'll be lifted off the ground, we heard last week when he was in Beijing that they would start this, but he had been hinting at all year that um, he really wanted to, his administration really wanted to pursue a new trade agreement with China. Um, a little bit of that got started, it seems, when uh, the Minister of Production and Foreign Trade um, you know, reemphasized that in the fall, um, and China and Ecuador signed a memorandum of understanding on agriculture science, um, which is to, it was a, to combat a fungus that's attacking banana plants across the region. So you're already seeing some initial starts uh, in the relationship to build trade ties, but uh, it was something I think that was very big last year and will only grow bigger this year. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree on that. Um, it, seemed, it seemed the Ecuador, you know, um, example was a little bit slow to get off the ground, but yeah, now it, now it's finally finally going going full steam ahead. So, I mean, the the, the MOU that I think that was signed, um, you know, in the last few days is is is. Is just an intention to begin negotiations, is, is what I understand. So it's a nice little piece of political theatre, but um, yeah, it's 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 certainly a, a stepping stone on the way. Yeah, I, I expect these trade agreements to be fairly substantial. Uh, Panama's been trying to. I don't think Panama closed theirs one yet. They were in negotiating process for a while. Did they close? I'm, I'm not too sure. But that was a uh, huge on the agenda from the previous Panamanian government, and now that a lot of the Mercosur essentially um, integration has stalled or even reversed, it depends on how you measure it. Doing some trade agreements with China is just good business, essentially. Um, it kind of like goes back to why Panama had essentially switched from Taiwan to China a few years ago, to twenty seventeen, I believe. Uh, at, at the time, China still is now the second largest contributor of revenue to the Panama Canal, and if you don't have an agreement with China diplomacy wise, you can't do much more. So now they have the 
diplomatic uh, ties with PRC, that means now that they have these commercial ties. So, for example, now the Panamanian flag is a major flagship of Chinese vessels, which is a big deal. And Panamanian flagships have preferential access to many Chinese ports. So, for various obvious reasons, you could have, you could not have maintained diplomacy of Taiwan if this, if this was up for grabs, um, commercially speaking. And I think that's very often missed. And it, you know, there was a there was a, a WikiLeaks file uh, years ago that had was, that had showed some uh, transcripts of some emails. I think of the uh, U.S. ambassador to, to from Panama to the U.S. or some of that or vice versa, where they were saying that you know Panama tried years ago to start diplomatic relations with PRC, but PRC said no. We don't want to take your Relationship because at the time Taiwan and PRC had a very good relationship with that whole uh, Manjo and Xi Jinping truce, and they said no, we 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 won't switch. But now you know now Taiwan and so on, PRC said okay, let's go. We agree, let's switch now, and that's the big deal. So Panama was trying to change for a long time. But yeah, so because of the whole in Latin America, the integration process is very, very stalled, various political problems, and just doing business with trade with China just makes just boring, boring economic things. And so I expect these other Latin American countries to push forward these, you know, Chile-like trade deals um, this year, next year uh, as well. I was just going to say the only thing I'd add, too, is that on top of that, both China and Taiwan indicated that they wanted to join CPTPP, what was formerly the U.S.-led TPP, right, but is now led by Japan and others in Asia. Um, which, of course, Mexico, Peru, and, and Chile are part of. So it's not just that Latin American countries are coming to, to China, but that China, um, and it seems that Taiwan as well, are, are trying to come to Latin America. Um, so it's lucrative on both ends. I think there was a, a new story just last week or before that, where Singapore and the Pacific Island, Pacific Alliance, Signed uh, some agreement. I don't remember what it was. It was it was an FTA. Uh, I believe it's one of the first FTAs that the whole Pacific Alliance has has been able to join. Um, but you know, I guess it's not just China. The whole the whole region is looking across the Pacific to integrate markets better. I see. And just to be clear, the Pacific Alliance is Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru. For those are who are who are not aware of the term. Okay. So, Mitch, what's your next uh, news story? Yeah, so something that I was following a lot with the China signal throughout the year was was you know a lot of M and A activity for Chinese firms um, snapping up lithium um, focused companies, but actually um, what I think is is also interesting that that complements that is a big move from a, a, a few Chinese electric vehicle companies coming into the region as well. So, you know, BYD has, has a pretty substantial presence um, in, in the continent, somewhere like Colombia. I know it supplies over 95% um, of, of, of Colombia's electric buses for, for public transportation. And I think that's only going to, to you know, um, improve and increase. Um, there's been discussion about um, from BYD reps about establishing sort of assembly plants within the country as well. Um, last January, we saw the Chilean government um, uh, unveiling a similar type of plan to to encourage a transition from from traditional sort of um, 
you know, gasoline taxis to electric, um, uh, electric powered taxis, um, with, with, in conjunction with BYD, um, and BYD itself has been launching, you know, their own um, range of, of passenger vehicles um, into a number of, of countries in the region as well. Um, we saw in November um, they announced um, their, their entrance for their BYD Han EV um, into, I've written Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, Uruguay, Dominican Republic, Costa Rica and the Bahamas. Um, in conjunction with that too, you know, Great Wall, um announced, you know, uh, the plans to invest $1.8 billion um, over the next decade. And with that, you know, to launch um, up to, I think, 10 electric vehicles um, into Brazil and then throughout the continent. Um, and that's shortly after they, they took possession um, of a Daimler um, uh, factory, which they, they acquired um, earlier in the year as well. So I think, you know, what... Uh, is interesting to me is that it's it's not just a growing relationship um, for for lithium, um, but it's starting to move up um, the value chain as well. A country like Argentina and, and the Fernandez government has um, spoken a lot about their desire to sort of you know deepen ties with China um, and to and to move up um, the, the value chain in that, and not just to be a, a pure sort of exporter of lithium. Um, but also I think this is symbolic or, or shows recognition from, from Beijing and Chinese companies um, of, the, of the market um, in Latin America um, for electric vehicles and for electric vehicles that are typically offered at a slightly lower price, price point than their American um, EV competitors as well. So in, in the smaller in the smaller countries, it's also a thing where in Barbados, for example, BYD is now, or so say, the electric buses fleet transformation. So the government is currently in a, you know, in a reform of the public transportation system where they're trying to get more electric vehicles in the country. So, but the electric vehicles that they are using are all BYD. So right now, this BYD, then they're recently are currently in negotiations for some kind of new EV type deal with Chinese firms. The Chinese embassy is involved in helping that as well. And, you know, it's something that I tend to say a lot. I kind of make it as a half joke, but not really, where I say that the biggest benefit that uh, Latin American and particularly Caribbean countries get from China are just the existence of profitable Chinese companies. Uh, because the real benefit is the import cost reductions and the technology cost reductions as well. That's the true, true benefit there, especially for the small countries. So yeah, so this kind of EV type solar power, photovoltaic, all this energy system development is really impactful. I think there was a story where, was it a Chinese firm bought a Canadian firm that owned a lithium well in Argentina, <laughs> right? Yep. Right. It was uh, Zijin Mining, I'm, I apologize for, for the pronunciation, bought Neolithium uh, in Catamarca. Um, and not only are they, they digging for the lithium, they're also just announced uh, either at the turn of the year or a couple weeks ago um, that they're going to build a processing plant in Argentina, so following up on Mitch's point of moving up the value chain, you know, it's not just extraction; um, it's it's processing and and being more downstream. 
So, so my next news story is about Curacao. So Curacao is a small island in the Dutch Caribbean. So it's, it's uh, still a, a territory of the Netherlands in Europe. But it's one of those, you know, very weird things where people forget there's the English Caribbean, there's the British Caribbean, French Caribbean, Dutch Caribbean, depending on how you spin it, Spanish Caribbean too. So, in Dutch Caribbean, Curacao. So, Curacao has a stock exchange called Dutch Caribbean Stock Exchange. It's extremely tiny, uh, very, very, very um, unactive, but a majority of the firms listed are Chinese. Yeah. So, there was an article come. I, I, knew, I knew it was an issue for a while, but the only article I could find about it in English was uh, from The Wire China. It was early 2021, and he made the article about it. And essentially, yeah, about 60% or so of all the listed companies on that exchange are Chinese. And they're very weird because they're not like any particularly big firms that you would have heard about. They're like, you know, they sell like tiles or they do like water water pumps (laughs) and that kind of stuff. The weird thing is that there's almost no trading activity on the exchange. So they are listed, but there are no stocks being traded. So that in itself is a, a strange thing. What it seems to be the case is that the companies, the Chinese firms, would pay all the listing fees, all the due diligence fees, and, and get listed on the Dutch exchange. But because it's Dutch in Dutch Caribbean, it's therefore actually Dutch and also partly European. So that gives you access to a much more global capital than you were if you were listed in China. I mean, you would not be able to be listed in China because it's so tiny and so small. Sorry, it's so tiny. Well, same thing. And you wouldn't be able to get the the, the approval of the exchanges in China, nor any large exchange outside of China either. But the Dutch Caribbean has a special niche. So they have these partners called listing agents that are mostly Chinese that are in China, <laughs> kind of work with them to find potential people to pay listing fees and do the due diligence. I am, I am not sure what the quality of the due diligence is. It's probably enough, but it's definitely not very substantial. And they get listed. And then these companies go about their way. They actually go to, they go to um, Curacao, have a big opening bell ceremony. They're really gung. They, they meet the, the ministers and so on. And they take some videos. I found some YouTube, some Facebook videos from these strange firms in Curacao drinking wine and stuff at the, at the banquet for the opening bell. <laughs> it is truly amazing. But yeah, that was my that story. I have never heard of that. And that's fascinating. Um, <laughs> and is, do, do you know... Do you know the, the 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 types the the breakdown of those who are typically trading on that exchange? Is, is there a high proportion of of European capital coming through to that exchange, or just? Oh no! Uh, but see, there's there's almost no trading. That's that's the thing. The, the stocks are essentially no not being traded at all. So they're just listed as an exchange as a listed company, but a traded company is that's different. So it's, it's a very small exchange. This, I think, maybe started in 2016, 2017. It's very young. And I'm very, very sure, at least pretty, pretty sure, that the only reason the, the exchange listed companies is to, is for them to say, hey, we are listed on a quote unquote European exchange. 
it's a bit stretched, but I'm sh- I- I've seen some portfolio um, prospectus from some of these Chinese firms. It's all in Chinese, of course. And they said, yes, we are. We have a European exchange listing. So that's what is what they do. <laughs> all right. Um, so I think for the next one, I'll say I think the closest closing closer relations between El Salvador. Uh, and China over the past year has been something really remarkable to see. I mean, what, three years ago? Uh, now now four years ago, El Salvador and Taiwan broke broke off. Um, and at the beginning, I think some people were questioning whether under Bukele, um, you know, it would be a close relationship. Um, El Salvador kept its FTA at the beginning with Taiwan, right? But in the past year, as you've seen increasing authoritarianism from El Salvador, uh, from the El Salvadorian government, right? Um, you've seen them have China as someone who would back the government up. Um, you know, there was pre-existing investment, of course, right? The Surf City project on the coast. Um, I believe they're building a library in San Salvador. Um, in the fall, uh, the ill the San Miguelito market burned down and China promised to uh, rebuild it. But you've also seen on a personal level, um, both with the ambassador saying, um, the embassy saying right after um, Bukele had, um, you know, attacked the courts, um, something that the U.S. condemned, but instead the Chinese embassy put out a statement saying that it's convinced the Salvadorian people have the capacity and wisdom to handle their affairs. Um, and you have, uh, increasing meetings between people in the legislative assembly with the Chinese ambassador. Um, I think that support has been something very noticeable where when the U S backs out of a country, you know, China is a willing partner, um, an enable partner. Um, I, you've seen this as well, right. In Venezuela, um, Venezuelan companies helping, uh, sorry, Chinese companies helping Venezuelan firms avoid, sanctions, um, especially around oil um, and both the the trade thereof to China and, um, you know, the drilling of it, China National Petroleum Corporation helping pay to VESA, China Concord Petroleum Corp helping pay to VESA. Um, So the the help for authoritarian regimes when the U.S. backs out, I think, has been uh, a major news story of 2021 and, again, something that will probably continue in, in the coming years, something that isn't going away. Yeah, uh, this actually kind of kind of worked out nicely because I, I can I can sort of segue a little bit from what Ethan was saying as well, and actually move to um, Colombia. Colombia as as you know a strong traditional ally of the U.S., but even a country like Colombia starting to leverage this U.S.-China uh, strategic tension to pursue their own objectives in a very rational way. Um, I thought it was fascinating. Um, in late February, um, there was a there was a call between Xi Jinping and, and Colombian President Ivan Duque, um, in which he secured Sinovac vaccine uh, supplies. Um, and shortly thereafterwards, um, the the Colombian ambassador to the United Nations in Geneva, um, Alicia Arango, uh, praised Beijing's human rights record. Um, which you know is was was sort of ironic, given that um, uh, you know 
the Duque administration is quite a conservative administration, um, and there they were sort of praising, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party's um, human rights record um, when they certainly wouldn't be praising the human rights records of, of other leftist regimes um, throughout the continent, in, including Venezuela, right? Um, so those comments were made, and then you know shortly thereafter, on on March twenty, I have um, with the arrival of an additional batch of of these Sinovac vaccines, um, Duque um, sanctioned, I guess, essentially the broadcast of of uh, a message, a recorded address from Xi Jinping um, to the Colombian people that that played out on a lot of the TV networks at the time. Um, and it was promoted from from Duque's own social media channels. Um, I mean, to me, I think it's 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 very interesting and, and sort of shows shows three things. Um, first is kind of the point I was making earlier on that you know earlier on in the pandemic, almost twelve months ago, um, the, the material necessities of of uh, securing vaccines from anywhere. Um, combined with own, you know, Duque's own political self-interest because he was getting politically crucified for being so slow to secure vaccines, they trump preferences, right? Um, you know, he was under a lot of political pressure um, and and when it became clear that WHO's COVAX, you know, vaccine program was moving at a glacial pace, um, he had to get them from somewhere and um, Beijing was was willing and available at a time when, when the US wasn't. Um, you know, secondly, I think it showed the willingness of, of, of the Duke administration when they were on a bit of a freeze out from the Biden administration, um, following, you know, some controversy over, over Duque's, uh, you know, um, political sidekicks being seen to favor, um, Donald Trump, um, uh, I think this was a signal from from the Duke administration, a, a call to, for attention, I guess, from the Biden administration. Um, and you know, I think overall, it just re- it just really shows that that it it isn't just um, authoritarian or, or sort of leftist regimes in the region that that are angling for closer relations um, with Beijing, um, but you're having countries even like Colombia. Um, really trying to play that U.S.-China rivalry to their own advantage, and in you know, it's rational, um, it's rational behaviour, I think, um, and 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 clever statecraft. Um, but obviously, um, it can have you know second and third order consequences that that can't necessarily be foreseen and controlled. Yeah, that's true. I I think that you know you, you mentioned you mentioned uh, some COVID and COVATs and so on. You, there was a fun. This is not my actual news. So I'm going to cheat and put put it in. It doesn't there, count. <laughs> <laughs> the host host privilege. Yeah. In here. Yeah. So there there was a, a story um, last year as well where so Savinsa and Grandines is a a Caribbean country and they had gotten a donation from COVAX for some vaccines but they couldn't use all of the vaccines in various time and so on and they gave the the extra to Trinidad then COVAX said no you got to pay for those vaccines that you donated to your sister country and they were like that is a huge uproar in the Caribbean about that so they said fine we, we will pay we will pay but like what <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> um so yeah, and then there was one more thing from one of the vaccines because you know I kind of forget how topical it was until I kind of now think about it. 
when the Sinovac vaccines or Sinopharm vaccines were donated to Barbados, of course, they had the normal photo op. But it was the photo was very, you know, very dull, very boring. It was the Prime Minister, it was the Health Thorer, and the Chinese ambassador, you know, any airport. But then when COVAX probably months later finally gave some vaccines, it was like 10 different people. Like from, it, was, it was Japan, it was the ambassador from Japan, England, America, Canada, European Union, all there. I'm like, but you gave less vaccines, so there are more photos being taken. It's all about the optics, right? And getting yeah. a good photo up. <laughs> yeah. oh, but but my my actual new thing is again it's very niche. I'm gonna bring all the niche topics uh, on my selection. This one's about corporate governance. Very fun. So last year there was some stuff played out in BVI with regarding to some Chinese companies and some U.S. shareholders in the BVI. So what happened was many people know that, or many people should know that many of the U.S. firms or many of the firms listed on U.S. stock markets that are Chinese are not listing from China, nor are they listing from the U.S. They're actually listing from the Caribbean and mostly BVI and Cayman Islands is is majority of them. I think around 70 or so percent of all Chinese firms listed in the NYSE entirely in the entire markets are based in Cayman Islands. They're called, they use something called VIE, a variable interest entity, and some are in BVI. Now, the BVI, because it is a BVI company, in most cases, BVI corporate laws hold firm. And last year, there was a very fun, again, <laughs> as an observer, fun a situation where there was an uh, American company suing a, essentially a Chinese company through the BVI. And it was the BVI's Judge Justice, called the BVI has a special subdivision of the Eastern Caribbean Court of Appeals. It's a special subdivision that's only for commercial activity. It's kind of like, you know, high-profile um, shareholder rights uh, adjudication. So this, this particular um, investor, um, who's a shareholder, probably called Namtai Properties, a Chinese firm listed on the NYSE, and they, this firm owns you know large property developments in Guangzhou and Shenzhen. And what happened was the firm, the Namtai, they did what you call a pipe. A pipe is a private investment for public equities. Essentially, they were going under some tough times. They had their shareholder battles happening. The Chinese banks... Um, threatened to essentially call in the credit credit that they, they own. So because they were having these these shareholder problems and various things that hit the balance sheet, the banks who the, the about five or so Chinese banks the main creditors, the largest of which was um, Bank of China, state owned bank, and then I think Xiamen International was the second biggest, which is a semi private type bank. They said, Hey we we're gonna call it they started calling the money, calling loans. Which I didn't realize was a thing um, in the BVI case. So it started calling loans, and before the, the, so the shareholders or the board of directors of Namtai, they said, hey, let's raise some money in case we lose our funding, you know, the whole um, construction freeze and so on in China. So what they did, they did this pipe, meaning they sold some shares in a 
less than market value type offering. And this particular company bought them. But then when you buy the shares in such a high proportion, you then own you know, a sizable amount of the company's shareholder uh, rights. And therefore, you now can say, well, we want to change the board and so on. But the people, the other company called uh, Ezo Capital Management, who owns a big proportion of Namtai, they're like, but we want to keep the board as it is. And they, they I think they own about 40% of the company. So they they sued the company plus the people that bought the extra shares to say, hey, this is an unfair treatment of shareholders. And a BVA court said, oh, you know what? You're right. Let's void this pipe, the private placement investment, um, the private investment um, operation. Let's void it. And that was a big deal because the Chinese company, Chinese banks involved. The Chinese banks actually kind of pulled back a bit. So yeah, it's, it's, it's still kind of going on all now. But the, it got much. It got much more news last year, even up to last month. There's some news coming out about it as well. But it's interesting how BVI courts are adjudicating Chinese company issues uh, much more regularly than you would think. Do you think that's something that's going to increase? Uh, as we move away from 2021? Uh, yeah, I think so. But what's been happening more recently, last year as well, Chinese courts have been stepping in to say we have jurisdiction over these BVI companies. Which is slightly, slightly new. I haven't really done that much before. Because very oftentimes Chinese, firms, Chinese courts have, let's say, not offered themselves to adjudicate matters outside of China. So more recently, you're seeing that reverse a bit, where courts are saying, oh, yeah, these are Chinese interests, Chinese firms, Chinese um, directors. Let's say, let's put some words in here. That you will see a lot more of um, going forward for sure. Yeah. So for my last one, I think we're on number five, right? Uh, for my last one, I'm going to do... Probably a much smaller story, but what I always think is is interesting that Dominica signed a agreement with China to allow mm. visa free travel between That's both countries. Dom- Dominica, no, Americans uh, always did Dominica. <laughs> Dominica, I am so sorry, Dominica. Uh, and I, I think this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is it's not the first country in the Caribbean to sign this type of agreement. The Barbados has one. Um, Suriname has one. Um, even in Latin America, Ecuador has visa-free travel. But what makes this always interesting to me is, at least the across the Pacific routes, that the only flights that you can take um, from China to the Caribbean and Latin America um, have, at least pre-pandemic, been with layovers either in Mexico, Canada, or the U.S., and the U.S. a lot of times will require a, a visa even if you have a layover. Um, and so I always find these agreements quite interesting because it, it makes sense. You know, if you can reduce the paper burden on someone, they might be more likely to travel. And it's obviously better um, for citizens in the Caribbean. Um, but even when you sign these agreements, it doesn't make everything perfect for travel. Um, there's still other impediments in the way and um, it'll be interesting to see if, as countries realize this and, and overcome them, you know, trying to find ways to work where there's layovers or direct flights that people are able to to better go between countries without having these burdens placed on themselves. 
you know, and that, that's a fun one. So, so I'm from Barbados, so I have Barbados passport, and we do have uh, visa-free access to China for 30 days. So, actually, I was living in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, this the time that Barbados and China signed the visa waiver agreement. So I heard that on the news, and I think two days later, I got on a plane from Manila to Guangzhou just to try it out. Because, oh, that, that's, that's mm-hmm. nice. It was, you know, very, very, very close by. So I got to the airport, and the guy in immigration was like, oh, where's your visa? Oh, I don't need a visa. It's a new thing. Blah blah blah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> there's this, there's this thing. Yeah. <laughs> he had to call his supervisor, and the supervisor's like, "Where's your visa?" I'm like, oh, there's a new thing. Blah blah blah. And she was like, "That's not really." She had to call her manager. So there's four people now in front of me in in the booth. I'm like, there the lines getting long, long, long. And then he had to call some like like airport superior type person. And then one more person got called in who apparently has some... At that time, my Chinese was not very good, but I could overhear he was some kind of policy person for the airport. And then they were all there in a group, little huddle, discussing what to do with my passport. And it put me like 15 minutes later, they're like, okay, you can come in. And so... <laughs> So I, I, I'm pretty sure the first person from Barbados to use that thing. <laughs> they, no, two days later. <laughs> you must have been getting such, such icy cold stares from everyone queued behind you as well, going, what is this guy yeah. doing? People, oh, yeah, people were very yeah. upset. It was a very long line. It was like a busy Guangzhou night. Um, very long line. Yeah, I'll finish with something uh, that came out in December and I was, I'm, I'm still kind of watching to see how it progresses this year too. And that's... CGTN made an announcement that they were launching this, quote, China LAC Media Action Initiative um, in December, like I said. Um, That's supposedly in conjunction with with about 30 Latin American media outlets, um, some of them pretty major outlets as well, um, uh, supposedly to collaborate with CGTN on a number of projects. They they say in in the article on online forums, co-productions, screenings and, and talk shows. Um, I've asked around others as well, sort of, if they know anything more about this, um, and and no one really does. So it's certainly a work in progress, um, and and you know we'll see how it actually materialises. But I do find it interesting because, you know, in 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 my work with the newsletter, um, fairly frequently I come across um, articles um, in Spanish just completely lifted without acknowledgement um, from Chinese state media sources, um, obviously with, with terrifically favourable coverage um, from, from, you know, Chinese and initiatives and, and, and so on. Um, and, and even beyond that as well, I, I just sometimes am, am quite surprised um, at, at media coverage um, of, for example, um, electric vehicles, or um, the the example I mentioned about about Colombia um, with their ambassador praising the human rights record, how these types of of issues really didn't receive sort of critical um, coverage or even well rounded coverage, you might say, um, in in local media. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think in in some ways that just to me shows that you know this relationship between china and and the region is 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 so new 
although it's growing so quickly, um, but it is so new that there's there's a level um, of not naivety, but uh, I guess a, a lack of sort of experience of, of covering um, these topics in the media. And so I think if, you know, CGTN really is serious um, in, in, in expanding and, and, and I guess um, improving the sophistication of some of their media coverage, I think that'll be interesting to see how it's, how it's propagated throughout the continent and, and, and actually received by, by citizens as well. I didn't at all know about that one. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to look it up. You know, that, that does dovetail with my last one bit, where it's media-related. So, uh, as some of you may have heard, Barbados is no longer um, headed by the Queen of England, so the head of state is now a Barbadian president. Um you know, as a Barbadian, I have a personal view on that. I don't really think it's that useful to, to make the switch, but it was done. And when it happened, the media across the world went wild in a strange way where they said the UK led the charge. Oh, it's China that is manipulating the Barbadian government to remove our beloved Queen of England as the head of state. And this started back in 2020 when it was first announced, but as 21 came about, when the actual thing happened in 20, in November 30th, 2021, it was, you know, much more, much more news on that, on that front. Which, you know, it's troubling in many ways, given that the UK were, to, UK said this, UK, the head of the foreign, um, the foreign affairs commission in the UK said this with his own words. And one has to imagine what he's doing. He thinks that the only reason why a former colony of England would want to remove the head of state as the Queen, he thinks China is involved, is is frankly pathetic. But there was a very interesting video from is a Chinese like a website. It's like a Chinese news website called um, Guangzhou. It is not state owned. You know, essentially, not state-owned, but they do these like um, news videos and interviews and reports and opinion pieces about various foreign affairs or technology or economics or business type things. And they did a very good one on Barbados when this thing happened. It was very surprising. This did happen in 2020, but the news kind of came up again in 2021. So what happened was this website. This Chinese website did like a like eighteen minute video. Um, is you can find you can find it on um you can find it on YouTube. You can find it in on Billy Billy Billy. You know you can find it anywhere. I'll make a link of it in the show notes of everyone else's uh, news stories. But what it did it was a very detailed um history lesson about Barbados and where it come from. You know slavery to independence, to civil rights, to foreign policy, to now. And the fact that a Chinese website, news opinion website, were to put that much effort into something England wouldn't even do is, to me, very, very surprising. And I'm still amazed it exists. And I, I somehow represent as much as I can. 
Um, there were some elements of it that I think were a bit, um, uh, a bit too drawn out. Essentially, they made these leap of conclusions, but it was very nuanced. And even even somehow brought in the whole Black Lives Movement. They somehow found clips of the um, the, the the protests in Bridgetown and Barbados when it was happening as well. Uh, it was very well researched. And the fact that I was on a Chinese website, there's, there's no English of this anywhere. I checked. It's only Chinese. And I find that quite amazing. That's really interesting. I mean... I just remember seeing those the <laughs> Spectator and the Telegraph and the Daily Mail. These outrageous mm, yeah, headlines. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, oh it's outrageous. Yeah, I, I I was actually interviewed for one of those. Um, I think it was the Spectator. They, they interviewed me on no, Telegraph. All the same, and the kind of questions they asked, they're they're fine questions. The lady mm-hmm. was a very good interviewer, and she was definitely just doing research, but. It's also telling that you have to ask certain questions still, even if you're doing background research. The mere fact of asking certain questions is quite telling about what your magazine thinks about an issue. So yeah, so yeah. Any any final comments on the news roundup? Anything you want to say about coming to 2022? Yeah. So in 2022, I mean, uh, right now the Olympics are going on. Um, I think that's that's been very fun to see, uh, right? Chile has a skier I just saw participating, you know, also on a sports level. It's very interesting. Trinidad and Tobago and um, Jamaica both have bobsledders this year. Um, but there's also, of course, the political angle with the Argentine and Ecuadorian presidents visiting. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see in November when the Chinese Communist Party holds its National Party Congress. Um you know, how do governments across the region respond to that? I think this past year, something we didn't mention was it was the 100th anniversary of the CCP. And you saw uh, praise for the CCP uh, for China um, and c- messages of congratulation from everyone across the political spectrum. It wasn't just communist parties, right? Um, it was parties, it was officials, it was presidents, it was civil society from across the spectrum. So I think that'll be something to watch. Um and then last thing, I think it'll be interesting to see if there are any flips in relations. Um, Honduras might seem like an obvious one, um, but I'm sure there are others um, who might just spring out of nowhere. Who knows? So those those are my three big things to watch in 2022. Yeah, Ethan, I, th- I, think, I think you've said it all pretty well there, mate. The only thing I might add to that I'm watching, um, uh, again, uh, harking back to the pandemic as it continues to, to evolve um, into more of an endemic, um, is a, a consolidation, I think, of of um, vaccine production arrangements and a deepening of scientific and research um, and productive collaboration um, between Beijing and, and and several countries. I think the most recent example we saw um, of an announcement um, was was in around December, um, again with Colombia, um, where they they ratified um, an agreement to, between Sinovac and the Colombian government. Um, um, which will aim to to produce locally the COVID vaccines, um, but as well um, the plan is to produce uh, hepatitis and chickenpox, polio, flu vaccines, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, um, you know, we're going to start and continue to see greater um, scientific collaboration, but also sort of um, uh, um, an embedding, I guess, of China's presence um, in, in the, the health sciences space um, that's, you know, I think that is a real broadening 
of the relationship just beyond um, pure sort of infrastructure investment and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I guess on that point of embedding, so what I follow a bit more close is the financial markets. And I think that is going to be much more developed and intertwined this year and moving on the next Definitely for the next five years in a very massive way. So uh, ICBC, a large, uh, you know, big four bank in China, opened a branch in Panama this um, last year. And this is a point that you guess you probably don't know as you hear in Panama. If you see the tower, the business tower that ICBC is in, is the same business tower as Huawei. So that's particularly interesting. <laughs> and so... You're going to see a lot more of that happening in the Chinese commercial operations in Latin America, mostly because the so many Chinese firms, as we've been discussing last hour, are moving into Latin America just for commercial reasons. The commercial financiers will also come in as, as well. So, uh, again, in Panama here, when you leave the airport, it, 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 the, the sign has changed now. But for a while, for months, when you leave the airport from Tokumen Airport in Panama City, the very first advertisement is giant Bank of China ad. They leave the airport and you see. And the, the ad was not about China. It was about financing global trade through Panama Canal. So it, it's in, in Chinese and Spanish. So essentially, that's what you kind of see. And because of these ch- um, Chinese investment into financial firms across Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, um, Colombia, um, I think like Tencent invested like $300 million last year alone, or last year plus the year before, in finance firms across Latin America. So because of that, I'm much more looking closely at financial markets. It's not being discussed too much right now. A lot of loans for like private, uh, sorry, a lot of like government loans are being talked about, but not enough in the financial markets. And that's going much more rapidly. And also now because last year China announced a advancement of the opening up of the financial markets in Shanghai. It's part of the new dual circulation strategy, essentially, ironically enough, is the opening of financial markets. That's why they allow, for example, foreign firms to own fully owned subsidiaries in, in Chinese securities now. So Goldman Sachs now owns a full um, investment house in, in, in Shanghai. So you'll see more of that kind of financial deep in Latin America. And as, at the same time, American firms are also moving to Latin America for finance. So I'm looking a lot closer at that in 2022. Hmm. There was a great, um, a very interesting interview from an ICBC rep. Um, I just can't quite remember um, what country they were based in, 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 in the region, but talking about how active they are in in their programs connecting um, exporters from the region to to Chinese importers and vice versa as well, um, and 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 running these online programs that will eventually merge to become in person um, as 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 travel permits, um, and of course you know to me none of this is occurring without the the sort of tacit or. or um, Approval or, or um, acknowledgement of of what sort of Beijing's broader um, financial objectives are as well with the region. I think that was an interesting point about it being broader than just the government. You know, it being these companies. Um, I don't know much about finance, but I do follow construction in the region a lot, and I think you've seen somewhat of a similar thing where a lot of Chinese companies. A lot of the news in the past year was Chinese companies winning big tenders. 
um, independently, but these weren't, you know, big political agreements that China was going to build a highway, that the government was funding this. It was just, you know, um, China railway construction saying, oh, this seems like a great opportunity in Bolivia or Peru. Let's just go ahead for it. And so um, I think that's part of a larger trend of companies just saying, okay, this is a region we know how to operate it now. Let's find business opportunities rather than the government necessarily pushing and saying, hey, you should look over here. This might be something worthwhile to to work on. So thank you so much, guys, for this fun episode. Um, I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. And we should definitely do this again, um, maybe even mid-year. Sounds great. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. Rashid, you, 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 you said you were niche and you really did uncover some gems. I learned a lot from some of those, so that was great. Thank you so much, Rashid, for the opportunity. I see.